0: There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Reagan signed executive order on intelligence number 12333, allowing the CIA to engage in domestic counterintelligence for the first time. Muhammad Ali, the single greatest athlete of all time, lost his 61st and final fight to Trevor Burbick. You, Dream Girls opened at the Imperial Theater in New York for the first of 1,522 performances, and on December 31st, as the year came to a close, CNN Headline News made its debut. While all of this was going on, we wrapped up our movie-going year with the films of December 1981. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie. And as always, I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Scott Weinberg.
1: Drew is my co-host, all right?
0: <laughs> it's true. It's true. I've been trying to pull this one over on people. but It's, un- it's so uncool when you say, I'm your co-host, when it should uh, be the other way around, man. Uh, Stop I it. I know. All right. Well, hey, as co-host... I am pleased to say that we have welcomed a number of new Patreon uh, supporters this month, and it is always exciting to see how many of you join each month. Uh, we just posted an interview today with Steven E. D'Souza, one of the screenwriters uh, who helped define the 80s. And there's some even if you're a big fan of Die Hard, I guarantee there's some stuff in this episode you probably never heard before.
1: Uh, like most writers, that man can spin a yarn. So we drive over to cross town to Arnold Schwarzenegger's office, and Arnold. Again, you're talking about like the the you know the the the, the game of domination. He has everybody has photographs on their desk, right? There's one photograph that's facing you in whatever chair you're in, which is his father in a Vermont uniform with a German shepherd leaping at the lens so violently it's blurry. Mm. So I said, my dad is a picture just like that, but he's in a different uniform. So So, so that broke the ice. Boy, (laughs) but yeah, if you're not a subscriber, please check out our Patreon Patreon page. Listen to our interview with Steven D'Souza, the uh, co-writer of Die Hard, Commando, Running Man, 48 Hours, like Drew said, one of the uh, most uh, influential and entertaining screenwriters of the decade. Say oops upside, your head. Say oops upside your head, say oops upside your head. Very quickly, the last episode, I, say, I said that the Prowler was also known as Fall Break. That is a mistake. Several cool horror nerds reminded me. The Fall Break uh, moniker w- belonged to the Mutilator not The Prowler. So there we go. That's the kind of people who listen to our show and I love them. Uh, We also have a friendly complaint that we did not cover Pinball Summer, a.k.a. Pickup Summer from March of 1981, a Canadian teen sex farce.
0: And appropriately, we're going to back up and we're going to talk about a movie that we missed that came out earlier in 1981 and that is The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia.
1: Monday. They're a long way from the top. How do I look? But they've come too far to turn back now.
0: I can't help thinking you're in some kind of trouble. You're crazier than
1: I am, you know that? The night the lights went out in Georgia. Uh, yeah, occasionally we we will overlook uh, medium or very small release films, but this, of course, was a major studio-wide release film, Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, based on a country song of the same name, which is now here, follow me here. The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia is an interesting song in that not only does it have a plot, but it also has kind of a cool twist ending. So go listen to that song and you'll see what I mean. Now you figure, oh my God, if any song would make for a cool movie, it it would be a song that has a story and a twist ending. So they made a movie out of it, except the movie has literally... Nothing to do with the song except the title. It really
0: is a strange decision because you figured that, you know, I know that Convoy they re-recorded because they wanted to make it fit the film a little better, but at least there, there's a convoy in the movie. I will grant them they got a convoy in the film, but they so clearly didn't want to do the story of the song that I don't understand what value there is in putting that title on this film. You know, I know that when um, when Nashville, when Robert Altman made Nashville, one of the things that uh, they talked about a lot was that the people who played songwriters in the film wrote their own music for the movie. Like Keith Carradine wrote the song that he played. And and everybody was trying to literally be those characters and write their own music. And in this thing, there is a lot of stuff about writing country music and Dennis Quaid's character being, you know, a potential star who's too big of a personal train crash to pull it off. When you watch Quaid perform, I know that later in life, he did more country music singing. He's recorded some stuff. It matters to him. Like, I think he really loves this music. I wonder, why wasn't this used as a way to kind of launch him as a country star if it's something he genuinely wanted to do, and you see he's Dennis Quaid, he's got
1: charisma to spare. You know, the, the film is a very ramshackle, loosely plotted story about a, a an, an aspiring country singer, as played by Dennis Quaid, it's very charming and likable, even, even very early in his career, and his rambunctious but responsible little sister, as played by Christy McNichol, and the two of them are very loyal and, and de- devoted siblings as they travel across the country and get play in hayseed bars. And th- they run afoul of a dirty, nasty cop played by Don Stroud, who is great at playing villains. And on the other side, they meet a very amiable and helpful police officer as played by the young and charming Mark Hamill.
0: Uh, it's so interesting to me how Mark Hamill really didn't become a movie star away from Star Wars. I don't get how he didn't get at least four or five other big movies right around this time.
1: I think that he was so quickly defined as Luke Skywalker that he got kind of trapped in the role and, uh, to be honest, when he was younger, I don't think Mark Hamill was that great of an actor. I think he's definitely gotten better.
0: Well, he's and I think part of what he embraced was the the voice acting and the, the way that sets you free as a character. And I think there's a looseness to him now, definitely, that is very different. You look at him here and there's he could be any young dude in Hollywood at that point. There's no there's nothing here that really jumps out as he's a movie star. Quaid is easily more charismatic than him in this movie. And more memorable. It's just, it it is weird to me that this is what he went and did between Star Wars movies. Like, I can't even imagine what he read in this, where he went, yeah, great, I'm looking forward to this.
1: What's interesting is, of course, we can't, you know, talk about the 1980s without glancing over the impact that a young Christine McNichol had on the decade, in the early part, at least. Um, She was in uh, 1980s Little Darlings, which we talked about, and prior to that, she was an Emmy-winning TV star. She was on Family, and she won Emmys for that. After that, she did White Dog, the pirate movie, and Just the Way You Are, which was be- kind of the beginning of the end of her movie career.
0: That's going to be an interesting run of stuff that I can't wait to get to White Dog, because that's one of the movies I can talk about all afternoon. What she has that is very, very difficult to fake as an actor is when she's thinking, you can read her face. Like, she is very, very good at communicating what's going on inside of her without talking like she just has one of those movie faces i'm frankly a little surprised that she she wasn't bigger i think she was really likable but i also think that right right around this time the writing for girls in their early to mid 20s there wasn't anything being written for them what would she have played looking at the rest of the decade i can't like pick out roles that she got screwed out over that she should have been in there just isn't a lot for people in her rate her age range
1: well, Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia is, if you're a fan of these actors, then it's definitely an interesting curio to dig up and check out. I think the, the music, for the most part, is terrible. I think that uh, the underrated Don Stroud gives a very good performance. And uh, beyond that, I remember very little about this movie.
0: If you've ever been to a film festival, there's this thing that starts to happen where people refer to the films by the directors who made them. You've seen this, Scott, where like you hear, hey, have you seen the new Von Trier? Have you seen the new Haneke? Have you seen the new P.T. Anderson? They don't call it by the title.
1: Let me try it, Drew. Have you seen the new John Derrick? <laughs> Thank God, no. Um,
0: <laughs> this month, you could kind of do it in those terms, and it's amazing sort of the range of guys we've got. We've got the new Billy Wilder. We've got the new Arthur Penn. We've got the new John Batham, We've got the new Warren Beatty. And these are some pretty wildly disparate efforts from some justifiably world-renowned filmmakers. Yet, even though some of these guys are world-class, that doesn't mean they're beyond making terrible films. For example, we're going to kick it off today with the latest from the director of Clute, The Parallax View, and All the President's Men, the late, great Alan J. Pecula, who directed
1: Rollover. They make the deals. Come up with the 500000000 million. They'll take you seriously. And keep the secrets.
0: I'll take my chances. They'll have to take theirs.
1: But time is running out. Dollar's dropping! It has gone through the basement. Rollover. First thing tomorrow I want all the lots in the house changed. Rollover. Rated R. Uh, this is uh, Jane Fonda as former actor and uh, new widow. Uh, and with Chris Christopherson as a new bank president, it's basically a financial thriller.
0: I love Pakula's films. I love uh, Parallax View and All the President's Men, and I love how, the, how paranoid those worlds are. I think he does this great job in All the President's Men, even if you don't understand the minutia of putting out a newspaper or journalism or how sourcing works or any of that. When you watch All the President's Men, he makes everything so urgent, and he's so good at at pulling you into it. I, I can see him trying to do that here with finance, but the problem is, and I think it's innate, I think the stuff they're, they're talking about here, the minutia of the money markets, is so deadly boring that no matter what stakes you attach to it, whether it's the end of Western civilization or murder or whatever else, it
1: just doesn't matter because this stuff makes your eyes glaze over. I'm sure that in, in the history of the world, there have been some fascinating mysteries and thrillers involving IRS agents or accountants. It's not a movie. Sorry,
0: And look, I know Chris Christopherson is a smart guy. He's, you know, he was a Rhodes Scholar and famously is a fairly erudite guy in person and a writer. But it doesn't matter if it doesn't read on film. And there's something about him in this movie
1: that feels out of place and miscast. I just don't buy him as that dude. Nope. No chemistry between the leads at all. Uh, it has some fun support performances by the late, great Hume Cronin, and a young Bob Gunton, who everybody will, of course, remember as the warden from Shawshank, but he's been in dozens, and this is one of his early roles, and he's great. If we have at least piqued your interest, because Jane Fonda, Chris Christopherson, Alan J. Pakula, it's an odd bird in that it's a erotic financial thriller. If you do watch this movie, the last five minutes are... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to... Don't, oh, don't, don't. What? And and no, no, I'm watching this movie and I'm watching the last four or five minutes and I I hit pause to see how much time is left in the movie. I figured, okay, with the angle they're going with here, this movie's got another half hour to go at least. Nope. (laughs) No, it's, I don't even think abrupt is the word. It is a shocking ending. Yeah, no, it's not even, it's not even abrupt. It's that it's also absurd. Uh, Speaking of abrupt endings, we now move to a more sober film. Richard Dreyfuss as a man fighting for the right to end his life in Whose Life Is It Anyway? The ultimate question in the human comedy, whose life is it anyway? The internationally celebrated drama acclaimed by New York and London audiences is now the motion picture event of the year, starring Academy Award winner Richard Dreyfuss and John Cassavetes
0: it's pretty much exactly what they advertise. The the car accident at the beginning is awful. The idea of walking away from it horrifies me. It's funny. The boys were over and they asked what I was watching. And I'm like, oh, it's this thing. I explained what it was. They're standing in the room. That happens. And they both go, we're out. And they just they're like, nope, whatever that is. We're not in. It is intense. And I think Dreyfus is the right guy to cast in this movie because it's a perfect fit for him. Even immobilized, he gets to be the liveliest presence in the room. And the anger that is simmering throughout this character's sort of arc in the movie is also kind of a perfect fit for Richard Dreyfuss. It feels like, yes, this was probably somebody saying to him, this is your Oscar bid. I know this was a successful play that ran for a while in New York.
1: And he's good. He's very good in it. The key question is, is the film thoughtful? Is it respectful to the issue? Uh, you know, And it does all that. And, and it does so in a handsome, interesting fashion. It's mostly about his rehabilitation and then eventually his court case that it's stagey, of course, considering it's based on a stage play. But the director, John Badham, who I will put down is possibly the most underrated director of the 1980s, him or Richard Donner, does a good job of keeping the film from feeling like locked in. Uh, Dialogue-wise, it feels a bit stagey, but uh, oddly enough, visually, it doesn't. This is a different Batum than the late 80s Batum or the 90s Batam, and there's a point
0: where I think Batam fell off a cliff. Everything up through Stakeout, I'll go to bat for, and I think especially right at this moment, he was coming off of Saturday Night Fever, Bingo Long, Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, and a very interesting take on Dracula based on a hugely successful Broadway run of that. And so this was not the John Badham of Drop Zone who was making this movie. This is a Badham that people took seriously and who was sort of in the running as a, an interesting guy who had come out of a decade of doing TV work nonstop and started to really assert a voice. And with Saturday Night Fever, you can argue this guy set off a cultural phenomenon. So like, there was real weight around him. And I I can see how... If you're a studio exec, you've got John Badham, you've got this play that's a hit, and you've got Richard Dreyfuss. That's a really appealing package. And I think everybody does everything they were asked to do. It's just kind of a surfacey play.
1: As expected, in a film like this, the supporting cast adds a lot. There are Christine Lottie and John Cassavetes as two very different doctors, Uh, Bob Balaban as an attorney, and interestingly enough, a guy who's been in what? Five of our films already, the great Kenneth McMillan as the judge. Who Who's just
0: lining them up and knocking them down in film after film after film. I love him, and when he shows up, it is always
1: good. Uh, but yeah, Whose Life Is It Anyway, if you love Richard Dreyfuss, make, consider it a must-see. If, if in 1981, you chose to go see Whose Life Is It Anyway, and then left the theater, you might then want to duck into a theater playing our next film. It's a Christmas surprise. The return of Walt Disney's Cinderella. The mystical, magical wonder. Get the oh, treachery no. of the wicked oh, stepsisters. Oh, no. Cinderella. An exquisite achievement in the art of animation for everyone who has ever had a dream. The most enchanting story ever told. Cinderella. Ah, I love this movie. Sleeping Beauty is still probably my favorite, but Cinderella's got to be up there. Uh, You know, uh, one of the cool things about Disney is uh, you and I grew up loving the contemporary Disney films, but yet we were still able to go back and appreciate The Jungle Book, Pinocchio, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella. And I honestly think the beauty of Disney like that still exists. I think that 12 or 14-year-old kids who were raised on Frozen and Moana are legitimately interested in, oh, I do want to see Sleeping Beauty and Pinocchio and Cinderella and The Jungle Book.
0: It was great that we got to see them theatrically, though. That was a big deal. And that, that's one of the reasons that I think they, they became very much a part of our internal film lives. They weren't things we encountered necessarily as TV artifacts. Now, Disney did a great job of taking pieces of them and reshowing them and repackaging them and really selling you moments from their movies to kind of remind you at all times, hey, these are the movies that we built everything on.
1: For those who don't remember... Cinderella is the story of a spoiled, rotten girl who treats her stepsisters like shit and really is just obsessed with going to this ball. <laughs> the rational stepmother tries to. The rational stepmother, Drew, tries to step in and speak reason, and Cinderella kills her.
0: Um, folks, Scott may have uh, misunderstood Cinderella. We're going to take a brief break and explain to him <laughs> the. Uh... <laughs>
1: Ah uh, yeah, no, I am grateful that Disney, uh, had the, I know it sounds, uh, silly to say because it's all fiscally motivated, of course, but I am grateful that I got to see stuff like Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and these movies re-released in theaters and, I'm not sure what year it was, we'll get to it now on this show, Song of the South was re-released. To us at the time, it wasn't like, whoa, I get to see this classic 1950 film on the big screen. It was, hey, family night, we're going to the movies. And then you look back 25 years later and you say, it was pretty cool that a guy born in the 70s was able to see Cinderella on the big screen. But it feels like Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty are more like films that adults would appreciate. Whereas when I was a kid, I was obsessed with 101 Dalmatians, and Lady in the Tramp.
0: There is nothing snarky about Cinderella. There's nothing tongue-in-cheek about it. It is a very straightforward and sincere rendition of the fairy tale. Now, this next film is one that I had missed, and I know what it was, but I had just never gotten around to seeing it, and um, I kind of feel bad because it's the intersection of two careers that I'm pretty fond of, and I, I'm glad I finally caught up with four friends.
1: From the mill town they were raised in, to the mansions of the super rich, through the tensions and the nightmares, the protests and the passions, nothing that happened in America could break their bond. Four friends, rated R. First of all, it's about one friend, okay? It's about Craig Watson. The, the other, there, There's a woman involved who who he's on again, off again obsessed with, and the other two friends are... Sp- superfluous i mean just al- almost non-entities correct
0: uh, clearly as she says late in the film she she wanted to love all three of her friends and could really only ever love one and so it's the other guys are there as obstacles between these two people over the course of 25 30 years of their friendship in their lives
1: uh it doesn't help that the woman in the as part of the four friends her name is georgia and she's meant to be this ultra endearing uh, and it, she's written in such a way that makes you wonder how she would ever make a profound impact on anyone. She's she's that ephemeral and that silly. The performance by Jodie Thelen is annoying. I, I will
0: grant you that. She is very theatrical. And what I find interesting about the film, and I, I do, I like the film. I didn't love the film. But I think it is a, a rebound for Steve Tesich, who we've talked about before. He wrote Breaking Away, which I think is a terrific screenplay. And then Did I Witness, which is a mess. And this was more personal, more autobiographical. It was more back towards him writing about sort of small American towns and especially the immigrant experience in a small American town. The the movie opens and closes with a family arriving in and leaving America. And it's everything between those events that basically is the film uh, with Craig Wasson's parents being
1: the, the ones that arrive and leave. Directed by Arthur Penn of Body and Clyde. One of the most inert films he's ever made. There's just very little energy to the proceedings. And it feels more like uh, somebody saw American Graffiti and thought, oh, yeah, I grew up in the 60s, too. Let me make that film.
0: It's funny because we're looking at this, though. This is 1981. So 60s nostalgia hadn't really kicked in. Tessich and Penn were there before a lot of what we've now internalized. So this is still them kind of defining how the 60s were even going to look on film. You got to remember, we haven't gotten to the point where Oliver Stone and and filmmakers like that had created this code now where if you're going to shoot the 60s now, there's a way to do it that automatically audiences go, all right, it's the 60s. I get it. And uh, someone to love is playing. And fine, I get it. There's a shorthand. I think filmmakers were still trying to grapple with what the 60s felt like. And figure out how to convey that.
1: It does have an, a handsome production design uh, and, and score and all that. It is ha- well made. It felt to me like a handful of cliches. I think it's worth mentioning that while I didn't care much for Four Friends, I think that you know people who uh, lived through this era might obviously glean much more from it than I did. And it's fair to mention that the late, great Roger Ebert gave it an enthusiastic four stars.
0: I'm going to guess that he did not give four stars to our next film, Scott. What are we talking about next?
1: Oh, my God, Drew. I know. I know. All right. Let, let's sit down and, Drew, huddle close to them. Okay, me. I'm close. I'm close. Okay, how you doing, man?
0: I'm good. I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm good. How do you feel about Cornelius Crane Chase?
0: I like him. I'm a fan. He made an unfortunate decision leaving SNL too soon, because I think if he had stayed with the show, he would have learned some discipline that he didn't really have when he left. And I think he became a movie star, too quickly
1: absolutely and and, you know the talent of Chevy Chase in season one of SNL is indisputable but to navigate this kind of career you need more than just talent you also need a little perspective you also need a little discipline you also need a little discernment Chevy Chase proved early in his career that discernment was not his strong point by starring in modern problems everybody dumped on Chevy until a nuclear shower gave him the power oh, it's true and the green light to get even facts and make this holiday season the funniest ever yes! Modern problems rated PG <laughs> I like it starts Christmas day at a theater near you.
0: This movie, if you remember in the buildup to it coming out, this movie had a huge ad campaign. It was a major, major Christmas release for Fox.
1: Why don't you check and see what Ken Shapiro has directed since Modern Problems? Um, Yeah, that would be uh, nothing. I've directed as much as he has. I think what happens is Chevy was one of the breakout stars of SNL, and a lot of producers wanted to, you know, cash in on that. And there's nothing wrong with that, provided, you know, you do it in an interesting way. And he just grabbed the biggest paychecks possible. And this screenplay, because there's nothing in this screenplay that would make you think, hmm, this is funny. I could really do something with this. Towards the end of the film, he gets telekinetic powers and then does a a handful of mildly diverting stunts with the telekinetic powers. For the
0: most part, it's a movie about a guy who can't get out of his own way and has jealousy issues with his girlfriend.
1: He doesn't have jealousy issues. Dude's a straight up, freak-ass stalker.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's just he's he's a controlling lunatic. Um, a title like that, modern problems. Okay, what's his job? He's an air traffic controller. Okay, I automatically, I'm kind of with you there. In 1981, air traffic controller was like one of the shittiest jobs you could have. And when they were making this, they didn't realize the air traffic controllers were about to go out on strike and then get fired by Reagan, and that it was going to turn into this giant thing. So they ended up having in this movie one of the worst jobs that you could possibly hope to have. What I would really like to see is a movie that even if it's sketch based or sketch oriented, I don't mind just having Chevy Chase play a guy who is put upon by modern life and finally reaches a breaking point where all these little things add up and he can't take it. And I feel like Shapiro might have somewhere in the back of his head had that idea, but had no way to get there.
1: This supporting cast has Nell Carter, Brian Doyle Murray, Mary Kay Place, Dabney Coleman. Dabney Coleman is first rate. And Patty Darbinville, and not one of them is given anything interesting to do. By the way, how is this movie PG? Oh,
0: dude. How is this movie PG? There's a scene where they go to the book release for um Dabney Coleman's book, and it's about sexual uh, mores in late 70s America, and the book releases at this gay leather bar in New York, and... There's really no punches pulled in how they stage it and how they shoot the club and how they they dress
1: everybody. There's also no punch lines. It's, not, it's just like... But that's
0: it. That's the joke. It's just they're in a gay club. And Toshi was looking at it and asking me questions. All it is is confusingly too much for a PG. The only interesting thing and genuinely the only subplot that I liked in it, I like Brian Doyle Murray. I like what his character is, this Vietnam vet who lost his legs in Nam, came back, became a book publisher, is living this great life and utterly unaffected by being in a chair. And the character, as just etched in a few scenes by Brian Doyle Murray, is way more interesting than Chevy's character. And Chevy's ex-wife, Mary Kay Place, who is super charming in this, meets him and immediately they fall in love and they have this kind of running subplot where they're in love now and they're kind of together. And that couple, infinitely more interesting and appealing. And by far, the movie I'd rather be watching is just
1: Brian Doyle Murray playing that character. I still love Chevy Chase, Warts and all. But boy, did he make some bad films. Modern bad Problems. Chevy, bad, bad Chevy. Now we move from a bad film <laughs> to a film. I'm so scared. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Andy Kaufman and Bernadette Peters. And now, direct from his worldwide tour, we proudly present the one and only Leonard Catskills. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good evening, ladies and germs. It's great to be here. Of course, at my age, it's great to be anywhere. But seriously, folks, I'm here to tell you about this new movie. It's called Heartbeeps, and it's about me and my pals. There's action, adventure, romance, Raccoons. Even people. Hey, kid, behave yourself. <laughs> but seriously, folks, don't forget to see Universal's new movie, Heartbeats. And it's coming for you-know-when. And speaking of Christmas... Andy Kaufman, Bernadette Peters in Heartbeats. Coming and, this Christmas. It's holiday I entertainment for everyone. So I says, I don't care who you are, so Get those reindeer off my
0: roof. <laughs> I was an Andy Kaufman true believer, and I, I love Andy Kaufman. I love what he was. I love what he meant to comedy. I love what he was doing in terms of breaking the, the Proscenium march and taking his comedy behind the scenes. And there was so much about Andy that I loved That The notion that he finally got a chance to make a movie was very, very exciting. And Heartbeeps was a big deal to me when it was coming out. It was a disaster. And here's the thing. As an Andy Kaufman fan... I get it. This should have ended his film career. He's awful in this movie. Awful. It is about two robots who are set. Well, three robots who are sent to a um, repair factory. And as they're put on the shelf where they're going to be stored until they're repaired, they meet and they fall in love and decide to wander away and go have their own adventure in their own life. And along the way, they pick up a little service robot who becomes their baby. Looks like the Minecraft version of Wally. And their third robot, the one that they're dragging along with them, it might be one of the most singularly unpleasant creations in film history. He is a stand-up comedian robot who only delivers the jokes of Henny Youngman, followed by Rimshot from a built-in thing. It's so unpleasant that at a certain point in the film, I would hit mute when I heard his voice begin because I couldn't take it anymore. Here's the thing. I've met Alan Arkish, and I've spoken with Alan a lot, and I really like rock and roll high school. I think Alan's a really funny guy. I think you Get Crazy is a really interesting movie. Yeah.
1: I mean, Alan Arkish could have been like his friend and colleague Joe Dante. I think this movie halfway destroyed his career.
0: Also, John Hill, the guy who wrote this, John Hill is sort of a legend in town as a screenwriting teacher. He's one of those guys. All I can say about that, having never met the man, having never taken his classes, based on heartbeats. I'm not going to take advice from him. This screenplay is
1: atrocious. The production design is horrific. John Williams did the score for this movie. Stan Winston did the effects for this film and made heartbeeps an Oscar nominee. The Stan Winston makeup I was
0: fascinated by it as a kid. There was a, there was a lot of time even after the film came out, and I was well aware that it was a giant unflushable turd. I still was fascinated by how Winston tried to make the robots expressive, still keep features rigid, what the give and take was on that. And I, I, it's an interesting solution. Uh, It's basically, you know, paint with plastic overlay, but it doesn't matter because the movie itself is so poorly imagined and it's a movie where for example you just cut to two robots walking and one of them goes what is god and the other one goes god is a construct for human beings to filter morality oh shut up stop that can never. That should never get past the first draft. That should never get past the table
1: read. Everybody should look at each other, be embarrassed, and say, all right, no. Some of our favorites pop up and some of our less than favorites. But uh, Christopher Guest, a guy we cannot escape, thank God, Kenneth McMillan is also in heartbeats.
0: Yeah, he and young Randy Quaid go after the robots together. And Randy Quaid, by the way, nine and a half feet tall. And completely weird even then
1: we, Look, when, when people When guys like us Who are very nostalgic And very charitable To the art of cinema Because we love film And we love filmmakers So, like, when we look back On a particularly bad children's movie That was made by people Who worked on much better films You would think Well, give it a break It's No, no
0: Heartbeeps offers nothing It is science fiction By people who don't like science fiction It is comedy by people Who aren't funny And it is filmmaking By people who barely like movies Yes,
1: Put that on the box, Universal. How dare you sully my childhood with such subpar entertainment? But now we move from a terrible Oscar nominee to a very impressive, well-received, and still warmly regarded Oscar winner. Universal Pictures proudly presents Catherine Hepburn.
0: You're my knight in shining armor. Don't you forget it. Henry Fonda. Want that? Oh, would you rather just suck face? Jane Fonda.
1: It seems that you and me have been mad at each other for so long. I didn't know we were mad at that. We just didn't like each other. I want to be your friend.
0: On Golden Pond. Rated PG. One of the things I'd like to point out, I don't know many people that have ever pulled this off, but Jane Fonda was not just the star of this and rollover, both in theaters this month, but the producer of both films with her company. And in both things, like fully engaged as producer, fully engaged as star, Uh, That's a pretty remarkable December by anybody's standards. So hats off, Jane Fonda. Too bad
1: rollover stinks. Uh, True, yes. (laughs) Okay, this is uh, written by Ernest Thompson, based on his play, uh, directed by Mark Rydell, uh, whose last feature was The Rose, and would go on to direct next uh, The River with Mel Gibson. Uh, This stars Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn as two loving and devoted uh, old people who are nearing the end of their time together because they're just very old and they visit their their vacation home uh, a beautiful house on the lake uh with lots of loons and fishing and sunlight and uh then a little bit of conflict finally arises in the form of their daughter who has a new boyfriend played by dabney coleman who is first rate dabney coleman is the best dabney coleman in the house uh and then jane fonda and dabney coleman dump their 13-year-old teenager off on the old people and bail for a month to go overseas. And that is your whole premise. The cast is fantastic. Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn, I could watch them just bicker and banter and smile at each other for 100 minutes, which is almost what this movie is. You know, again, it's almost become like a stereotypically Oscar movie, Uh, but it is a a very heartfelt and uh, satisfying movie, too. Scott back I love you, you old poop. Oh, yeah, oh, I, I love you too, Drew. I wouldn't have watched this movie as a child if you had paid me $50.
0: This was a big Christmas outing uh, from our I from didn't our see house.
1: it on Golden Pond until I was probably in my 20s.
0: I like Mark Rydell. Uh, his, a lot of the stuff he directed, I love the Cowboys. I love the Reavers. Um, I dig Cinderella, Liberty and the Rose. I think there was a period of time there where he was really cranking them out. And, and, doing, and as an actor... Amazing, And Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye is the best scene in that movie. When it was on Broadway, it was a huge hit. And Jane Fonda bought it uh, specifically because she wanted to play that relationship with her father on film. She wanted him to be the guy that played it. And she wanted to be in those scenes with him. I have no idea what the Fondas were really like. I have no idea what their relationship was really like. But they're wonderful here. And there is a lifetime of experience between them that comes out in these sequences. It would be amazing if they weren't good sequences, uh, just based on how talented these people are. But I think Rydell did a really nice job of taking Ernest Thompson's script, just letting it breathe. It doesn't feel rushed. It never feels like it's on its way to some giant epiphany. It's little epiphanies along the way. And it's funny because, you know, we we talked about how uh, another one of the films this month, uh, Whose Life Is It Anyway, was also based on a play. And Broadway used to be a much bigger source of material for Hollywood. It used to be like a, a proving ground for a lot of these things. These days, it feels like even if stuff does get adapted, it takes 20 years before it makes it to the screen, it is really not the same relationship that they had back in the early eighties and the late seventies.
1: Mm-hmm. This was nominated for 10 Oscars. It won uh, Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn, both won for actor and actress. Uh, it also won adapted screenplay. It should have won for uh, cinematographer Billy Williams because it's absolutely gorgeous. You could see why this would just be an interesting comfort movie for people to put on. It's just Dave Grusin's score is beautiful. Uh, I, you know, I could see this being somebody's comfort movie very much. and it oh, is Oh, uh, absolutely.
0: I bet anybody who ever grew up around a lake and had that kind of experience, I bet this is one of those movies that just feels like a warm bath.
1: This next movie,
0: I am so excited uh, that we get to talk about this film. It is a movie that I come back to every so often because it is such a big meal. And I feel like even now, this, this last time around watching it, it was once again a new experience for me. I love this movie. I am a huge fan of Warren Beatty's Reds.
1: This is an epic three-hour romantic drama based in actual history, starring Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton as globetrotting radicals who get embroiled in the Communist Revolution of Russia of 1919. Uh, Jack Nicholson pops up as Eugene O'Neill, and he is brilliant. Uh, Even after watching the film, I still don't get a lot of the uh, political and historical machinations that went on behind uh, this story, but Beatty and Keaton do a a really good job of making me care, even though I don't know much about this period in history.
0: I want to talk first about the goofball epic. I have this theory. I've noticed the tendency in epic movies, especially ones that are from actor-directors, where they use humor to kind of disarm the audience while telling these very serious and sprawling stories. And specifically, they kind of make the leads a charming doofus. I think it kind of started with Lawrence of Arabia, because if you think of Peter O'Toole in that movie, while he is Lawrence of Arabia, he's also visually kind of a big goony bird. He's just elbows and angles, and he looks like a marionette that got the strings all tangled. And, you know, you think of stuff like Dances with Wolves or Braveheart, And you think of how much humor there is built into those movies to try and disarm the audience before they start to get heavy. And I think Beatty uses a lot of his own sort of spacey charm in Reds to pull you into a very, very difficult. I mean, it's a movie about socialism in the early part of the 20th century. That is not an
1: invitation to a
0: party. I'm watching this movie
1: halfway through it, and I'm thinking whether you like this movie or not, you got to give Beatty some props for like, this is not a Hollywood friendly
0: story. No, and he finds a way to make it absorbing and entertaining, and it is funny, and it's romantic, and it's heartbreaking. I love that there are so many people that you kind of run into along the way in the film. Gene Hackman pops up a couple of times. Maureen Stapleton is awesome in it. Uh-huh.
1: Edward Herman, uh, Paul Sorgino. Dolph Sweet.
0: I love Dolph Sweet's role in it. Max Wright shows up in it, and it's great. George Plimpton. And another thing, you talk about photography in On Golden Pond, but Torio photography in this movie is amazing. To me, his movies feel like dreams. His movies feel like they are pure emotion through like, light and color. And the way he plays. like somebody's
1: hazy memory. Yeah,
0: it's not real. But I don't think that's necessarily what Storaro doing. He's making beautiful pictures. And I think this, the structure of the script overall reminds me a lot of Lawrence of Arabia. Because John Reed is in the first half of this film, everything before the intermission. He's the right man in the right place at the right time. And he's there to write a book. 10 Days That shook the World. The whole first half is him figuring out what his role in this is, and being there when it happens, and observing it, and capturing it all, and it builds to the triumph of he writes that book, whereas the second half is he overstays his welcome, so we don't just see his rise and his triumph, but then we have to see what happens afterwards, and I always think that's where people get defined, is when things have already peaked, and now what do you do once
1: you've fulfilled your destiny? When When you look up and you realize that the crusade that you've been fighting for is now on the wrong side of history, you think that you're an idealist, and then one day you wake up and realize you're not the idealist. You're you might be the enemy.
0: I like that this is a movie about political people, but I don't think the movie itself is political. I think it's politically literate. It is very good at expressing that these are people um, who are at the flashpoint of revolution and they are passionate. And he's trying to make a movie about the hope and the long hours that go into that and the energy it takes to be part of that. And kind of how explosive historic moments happen and how many people have to lean in and push to do something like that. And I think that's part of this movie. Now, here's a question for you seeing this last week. What did you know about The Witnesses before the movie?
1: Yeah, I did not know that it was intercut with with uh, interviews with people who are actually there.
0: The Witnesses are one of my favorite things about the film.
1: What he said at the time, and it's
0: so smart, is that a movie like this is going to end up being 90% exposition because you're going to have to explain everything for audiences to get it and to get what they're watching and to set a context. So using the witnesses to set the context and then just letting the scenes be scenes that are dramatic and never doing exposition in the film, it is wonderful. And the people that you see, you see the founder of the ACLU, you see labor organizers, you see actual communists, you see Henry Miller. There's writers and painters and cartoonists, and all of them share their views. And what I love is that they contradict each other. I love that there's a lot of it that's very funny. There's a lot of it that's very personal, but it is real. And because they do such a great job of setting the context, then when you drop into the actual scenes in the movie, you buy it. You buy that these are the people and this is the world and this is what's going on right now. Can we talk about how great Nicholson is in this movie? Because this is what Pete Nicholson looks like. This is Nicholson at his very best. The way Warren Beatty got him to do this film, it's its kind of a, uh, a famous moment, was he wanted at first to cast... Oh, by the way, we're going to take a quick moment of silence because the first person that uh, Warren Beatty wanted for this part was the late Sam Shepard, who passed away this morning. And I just want to say for a, a quick moment. When you cast Sam Shepard, you cast somebody who was a walking, talking icon. Sam Shepard was the playwright every playwright wanted to be, and he was the cowboy every cowboy wanted to be. He was something else and uh, cast a very long shadow.
1: Yeah. Rest in peace, Sam Shepard. I, I, mo- a lot of people know him from his uh, written work. He won a Pulitzer uh But uh, I I mainly know him from his acting work. He was nominated for The Right Stuff. And he's just always, in any film, he added some class, charm, edge, humor. Just he'll be missed, Sam Shepard.
0: Well, he was the first guy that Beatty thought of. But then Beatty really, he, he decided that it was Nicholson and there was a specific reason. So he went to Jack and Jack really didn't want to do it because of the size of the role at first. But then as Beatty was talking to him, he said, look, I'm not even I don't really care I'm not asking you. I just I need some advice because I need someone to play Eugene O'Neill, and it has to be somebody who can convincingly take a woman away from me.
1: <laughs>
0: and that's when Nicholson goes, well, then that's definitely me. It's a terrific story. I think it's one of those things that to get Nicholson to, to give this kind of work, you had to give him something to chew on. And this is a, a terrific piece of writing. Um, although it is credited to Warren Beatty and to his co-writer, Um, Elaine May was this movie, Secret Weapon. She came in and did a lot of the writing on this film and especially a lot of the relationship stuff. And and it is gorgeous. It is just such a dense, wonderful movie that you can spend time and time with.
1: Yeah. Kudos to Warren Beatty for, you know, using, you know, what what at the time was considerable Hollywood clout and could have could have could have greenlit literally any vanity piece, any starring role he could have greenlit anything if he was going to star in it
0: yeah. yeah this was this was after sorcerer and heaven's gate and apocalypse now had all happened and studios were starting to get really scared of this kind of thing and i've got to imagine when you're paramount and warren Beatty comes to you and says yeah i'm going to spend 35 million dollars on this film about a dead commie um in the early 80s
1: that's got to be a
0: little terrifying
1: War- fair warning you, a lot of times you see a three-hour movie and you think oh i'll watch it in in period well the film has an intermission break I watched the film in one 3 hour and 15 minute block I did not get up So Red's is definitely recommended uh, And then from there we move on to a horror film That again the theme of the week Is bored me as a kid But now it doesn't John Irvin's brilliantly cast Ghost Story The house is so empty The town is so still The truth never buried Has come back to kill The cold wind shrieks Full moon's pale. The time has come to tell the tale. Fred Astaire, Melvin Douglas, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., John Houseman. Ghost story based on Peter Straub's terrifying bestseller, Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you.
0: First of all, I just want to say that having watched it again for the first time in a long time, I I have a very different relationship to this film than I do the book. The book is its own thing, and Peter Straub is a very particular writer who I think
1: has a beautiful command of language, doesn't really have a handle on story. Never really got into Peter Straub, man. Growing up, I would read anything by Stephen King, Dean Koontz, Robert McCammon, of course, Clive Barker, and a couple of times people handed me Peter Straub novels, and I would get halfway through it, and. Just nothing against the guy. Just not my personal preference. You know,
0: I, uh, I like the book Ghost Story. It's very clearly influenced by Salem's Lot. You can tell that he had just read Salem's Lot and got very excited about how to tell that kind of a whole town kind of dealing with a supernatural event. That's what excited him. The film version I am less fond of. And here's why. Because the way the movie plays out, Alice Krieg is clearly the hero of this film and all of these guys are old assholes and screw them. I don't like anybody in this movie.
1: Ghost Story is about four old gentlemen as played by, get this, Fred Astaire, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Melvin Douglas, and John Hausman. Now, even as like, you know, a young movie nerd who barely knew anything about classic era of cinema, even then I was like, wait a minute, those are legends. I, I, those are names that I know. And these are old New England men who harbor an old secret about a woman they all once knew. I, see, and I think the movie has a perspective issue
0: because I don't sympathize with everybody. If this was a revenge movie where the ultimate satisfaction of the movie is her getting her revenge on all these old men, that would be fine. But the movie is meant to be played like we are supposed to be on the guy's side. And she is the supernatural force coming after them that we're rooting against. And I'm not rooting against
1: her. No, I don't know if I agree. I, I think it is kind of that dark, EC comics vibe of they all deserve it. Even the quote unquote nice one deserves it. And we're going to see justice prevail.
0: I think John Irvin has uh, and we talked about Dogs of War, which I think we both liked and, and had a good time with. Uh, John Irvin's not a bad filmmaker. I don't think he has any inclination to how to shoot the supernatural moments in this movie.
1: No, and it's an interesting movie. And I don't think John Irvin is the right director for it. Dogs of War, Raw Deal and Hamburger Hill. Not the right guy for a quote-unquote gothic ghost story.
0: I know there's a lot of Dick Smith makeup that got cut from this, and Dick Smith was evidently heartbroken about it, and the stuff that's in the movie is not
1: very good. I will tell you this. I dug deep into the credits page on this one because I was curious about who did the effects work. I don't think you will ever in a million years find a film that has credits from these five people. Albert Whitlock, Steve Johnson, Carl Fullerton, Rick Baker, and Dick Smith. And you can't tell. You can't. I
0: mean, the, the few sculpts that are in it that are actually still in the film, they're fine, but they're not shot very well. And, he does this thing where he's immediately dissolving and melting stuff as soon as you start to look at it, which not really a great way to to experience the murderer's row of talent that you just listed there. Whitlock, you know, every time you see the the town, it looks like an Albert Whitlock matte painting like it is clearly him. Oh, and
1: there's a wonderful sequence early where uh, it might be a dream sequence. It might not be. I won't spoil it, but Craig Watson. F- who we just covered. Uh, and Craig <laughs> Watson is the lead and he falls out a window and it has this forced perspective mat shot. That is Albert Whitlock. Just,
0: ah, but it might be the first combination of Albert Whitlock and actual dong. So it is kind of groundbreaking and miraculous.
1: Yes, there is a penis in this film. It does belong to Craig Watson, And yes, it did haunt my childhood. Oh man. Front and center. A, n- a naked man falling out of a window and his willy <laughs> flapping in the breeze <laughs> As the, uh, as the dispatches arrive in the film, you kind of wish you had, like, Richard Donner of the Omen. That's who you need for something like this. But It is a bit dryly directed, but, uh, but I enjoyed it a bit more than I did as a kid, and usually it's the opposite. So there we go. All
0: right, so this next one, I, I'm just going gonna, gonna to pull the Band-Aid off here. Um, this, this is tough, uh, and it is hard to believe that this is a film from the great, legendary genius billy wilder i am talking about buddy buddy
1: this is the story of two men who met on the off-ramp of the highway of life sorry i was throwing up (laughs) i have a nervous stomach because of my wife Jack Lemon is Victor Clooney. We've been together for 12 years. That long? He only wants to die. Now the whole thing is in my suicide note. You want to read it? No. Well, the math out is a mailman. A milkman. A hitman. My god, what line of work are you in? Pest control. Jack and Walter. <laughs> the most arresting comedy of the year. I done something to offend you. Buddy Buddy. The original odd couple. <laughs> together again. <laughs> this is a huge misfire. It's a a reunion of Lemon and Mathal, who would of course star in many more films together. Uh, including Grumpy Old Men and the sequel and uh, Out to Sea, I think, uh, in what might be their worst feature together.
0: Yeah, it is genuinely mind boggling. This is IAL Diamond co-writing with Wilder. This is Wilder. This is, as a premise, I guess I can see how, you know, here's the setup. He's a hit, Walter Matthaus, a hitman who's so good at his job. He's taken out two out of the three stool pigeons that are going to testify in this mob trial. He's supposed to kill the third one. He checks into a hotel across the street from the place he's got to do it. And a suicidal studio network censor, whose wife just left him for a sex cult, checks into the room next door and tries to kill himself and keeps disrupting his plans. And he has to get involved with the guy to get him away from what he's doing so he can finish the job. That's a really convoluted premise to try and describe, much less get off the ground and make effervescent and funny and make it
1: work. Yeah, this is uh, an American remake of a French comedy called A Pain in the Ass by Francis Weber. Uh, we touched on him briefly uh, when we did La Cage en 2. His films would be adapted this decade into films like Partners, The Toy, The Man with One Red Shoe, and Three Fugitives. Not great. That's not a great track record. And Buddy Buddy, I, I don't know if Walt- Billy Wilder could ever make a truly awful film, but unfortunately, this was his last film, and it comes about as close to awful as you can get. It's just not funny. I love that it's
0: in full 235 scope. It is so rare that comedies were even shot in scope. I think Billy Wilder did it. I think Blake Edwards did it. There's not a lot of filmmakers that shot that way, and I like scope for a comedy. There's something that I really love about that frame and having people play opposite each other in it. The one thing that I think is funny about Walter Mathau in this movie is how annoyed he is by the sex clinic that Klaus Kinski runs. Every single mention of it, he is so annoyed by the mere existence of it. He calls them at one point. The girl answers the phone, gives the entire name of the clinic, and there's a long pause and Matthau says, what the shit is that? And the what the shit is that out of Walter Mathau made me laugh.
1: The thing is, I, uh, Billy Wilder is such a, an astute filmmaker that I think that probably cutting this film he probably knew it wasn't great just did the best he could putting it together maybe it's because he was uh remaking maybe it's because he was adapting and and this this does not this feels like you know like a studio said hey billy wilder we just bought this remake rights do you want to we bought these remake rights you want to make this movie uh okay yeah i need a job i'll do it
0: look there are there are way worse comedies this month buddy buddy uh, escapes by contrast because we've already talked about heartbeats and modern problems and those are just incompetent i met Wilder very, very late in his life. Uh, I a friend of mine screened a movie, and he wanted to screen it for Billy Wilder and somehow got the opportunity, and Wilder said he'd come see it in a private room. And so I uh, my friend was so nervous that he said, you got to come and, and fill the screening room so he's not by himself, because that's just crazy. I can't do that. So we got to sit, and we got to watch the movie with Billy Wilder, and it was a long film. And uh, at the very end of the screening, the lights came up, and Billy had the guy that was there to help him kind of in and out of the chair. And Frank walks over and, and leans down and Billy goes, Frank, I, I want to tell you, I, I watched the movie and it is a beautiful movie, Frank. It is a very human movie, but, um, I have to pee very badly. I am an old man. Please move. And then they. Put him in the chair and Billy left and finally came back like 10 minutes later and then talked about the movie for a long time. But it was one of those things where I think Billy Wilder loved the joke right to the end. There are moments in Buddy Buddy where timing or where just the way a line is delivered. You can see that comic sensibility and that wit. But it's just not a film that I think embodies what he was capable of at his greatest.
1: From an odd misfire from a great filmmaker, uh, we get a great film. That really deserved a much better fate. Herbert Ross's adaptation of Dennis Potter's Pennies from Heaven. Listen, there's got to be something on the other side of the rainbow. Oh, there always is. Steve Martin, in his first dramatic role, lives in a world on
0: both sides of the rainbow. I love you. You must
1: be crazy.
0: Bold, provocative, original. Pennies from Heaven, a special motion picture experience. Love the good for anything.
1: Now playing at a theater near you. I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. This is a brilliant film. I've been told more than once that the BBC, the 1978 BBC series on which it is based, is even better, and I will definitely be seeing it. I never have. This is about a post depression era sheet music salesman who imagines a beautiful musical world based on old tunes while alternately struggling through a muddled, desperate life on the road with an unloving wife and a go-nowhere career. The lead is Steve Martin who is absolutely wonderful, and I I hate to say it, but I almost think that having Steve Martin in the film is kind of what hurt the film in a box office sense, because I think people saw Steve Martin and his co-star Bernadette Peters and assumed it was something like The Jerk, and it couldn't be more different. Drew, your theories on that?
0: I think it definitely hurt it at the box office. I also think it's the reason that the film endures and is great, because Steve Martin in this movie is magnificent. It's an unbelievable performance. Now, I'm a fan of the original Dennis Potter piece. Um, and I think, look, I think Dennis Potter is one of those guys who pushed everything forward with what he did. The, his work on British television was defining and transformative. And there is a generation of English writers and American writers who, who learned that they could take risks by watching what Potter did and how he broke the form. I don't think Herbert Ross ever made a better movie than this. We talked about him when we covered Najinsky and I think you know his forte was he came from a, ba- a dance background, and certainly he had a real sense of how music and dance could work on film. There's something about this one that fit him perfectly, and he really attacked it. I love the idea that Arthur's a, sh- a sheet music salesman because I think what he's really selling, and you see him in several scenes, um, he's selling belief in a song. His whole life is th- is set to this secret music, and I think a lot of us live the same way, and for him music is the the one bit of sunshine and the world is shot so that we understand how much shadow there is around him so he's craving what songs give him these little hits i love that his wife joan played by jessica harper has no idea what to make of him that every scene between them especially if it deals with sexual energy at all is crazy and then on the road he meets this this school teacher who when he's on the road he can be anybody he wants to be so when he's with her he is person that he is when he listens to the songs when he's with her even if it's a lie but at least he gets that moment
1: pennies from heaven in in, if you want to boil it down to its essence is a 1930s musical intercut with a 1940s film noir what bothered i think a lot of critics and viewers back in 1981 was that these musical numbers were so beautiful and energetic and creative and then it's juxtaposed with these dark dour sometimes very somber, not even melodramatic. I mean like realistically somber concepts. And I think that that contrast throws a lot of people off. The cross-section between high fantasy, happy fantasy, and dark fantasy is absolutely fascinating, especially if you're a movie geek. I absolutely love this movie.
0: I think Gordon Willis, uh, the photographer who did The Godfather 1 and 2, uh, does absolutely brilliant work here. The, the, way this film is shot is gorgeous. Um, I've got I've to point out, I think Steve Martin as a dancer in this movie is unheralded and should be celebrated, and he throws himself into it. And then as good as Steve Martin is.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, professional scene stealer Christopher Walken.
0: This is that moment where you realize this
1: guy can do whatever he wants, and he demolishes. A tap dance strip tease to Let's Misbehave that is the textbook example of a show stopper you owe it to yourself to check out pennies from heaven uh, it, it is a fascinating rumination on the uh, juxtaposition between fantasy and reality
0: our next film we're going to get a little whiplash here from the last film this guy made it is hard to believe that just two months after paternity burt reynolds could direct and release the brutal ugly unforgiving *Sharky's machine
1: Bert Reynolds is Sharky. He's a smart cop, but somebody's in his way. You're an outcast about to lose that badge of yours. What he hears, he can't use. Tell him there's no way that he can win, do you understand? What he knows, he can't prove. the tapes are gone. And what he sees, he can't have. But nobody leans on Sharky's Machine. Sharky's Machine, rated R. Now play. Check newspaper for local listing. This is a pretty standard vice cop procedural involving hookers and human trafficking and, you know, hard-boiled cops and informants and stoolies and dirty cops. It's just basic crime thriller and enjoyable at that.
0: The guy who gets shot when he's laying on that rotating bed with the Asian hooker has to be the most upsettingly hairy human being ever filmed.
1: Oh, dude. I, something about a very, very hairy man freaks me out. I don't know why.
0: I'm I'm 100% pro Sharky's machine. I have a soft spot for this movie. As somebody who has watched Burt's Pretty much whole career at this point. Um, I think Burt looks fucking cool in this movie. He looks a lot like Sean Connery at that time because of the haircut and the mustache. There was that—that's a kind of style that I think
1: was was popular late seventies, eighties. You would say this is uh, this is Burt Reynolds Zardoz. Uh,
0: oh God, uh, no! It at least makes sense, so it can't be Zardoz. Um, but this is the beginning of kind of our serious Burt coverage for the podcast because we did Paternity, we did Cannonball Run, we did Smoking the Bandit 2. This is, I think, an essential title for Burt especially because he directed it. And I think there was a time right around here where he was almost directly competing with uh, Clint Eastwood. There was a sense that what Clint Eastwood did, Burt Reynolds also did, and they were kind of in the same space. And Eastwood made the jump to directing first and was acclaimed doing it. I think it must have been eating at Burt. This is a really cool cast. And for the first half hour, I like this more than I liked Fort Apache The Bronx, kind of as just a look at how dirty and grimy cop work was.
1: Yeah, uh, but as a director, I don't think Burt Reynolds is a very good director. It's based on a novel by William Deal, and uh, like most movies of this era, even if you don't love them, you could just sit back and watch Brian Keith, Charles Durning, Henry Silva, Bernie Casey, Rachel Ward, Richard Libertini. Some movies are not that great, but you're like, yeah, you know what, I'll watch a movie in which those ten people... Wander across the screen.
0: I read that Reynolds originally wanted John Borman to make this with him because they had done Deliverance together. But Borman was off making Excalibur at this point. I am really fond of Point Blank, which I I think of as badass John Borman. And he never really got back to making movies like that. Just bare knuckle badass movies. I sort of wish he had made this and
1: made one. John Borman, in a way, kind of reminded me of a more cerebral Walter Hill. Blam.
0: Point Mike is so good and such a great tough guy film. And there's moments of this like when Henry Silva kills the girl that he thinks is Domino. There is a shot of her on the floor, face shotgunned off that is so graphic and insane that I can't believe it's in an, even an R-rated movie.
1: Yeah, I dig it. I forgot all about it two hours after I watched it, though. That's, that's that kind of cop movie.
0: I will say that Henry Silva... Is probably my favorite part of the film, especially towards the last half hour where suddenly he's the star of the movie.
1: Right. Out of nowhere, it's like, oh, oh, I guess that's the villain.
0: Yeah. And he's crazy. Like, for the whole rest of the film, he's just kind of a thug. And
1: then suddenly he's this pathological Buffalo Bill lunatic. Unstoppable Rutger Hauer. Yeah. So, all right. Now, Drew, before we move on to our next film, why don't you uh, cover the infamous stunt? Okay. So if you were alive for the release of this movie. All
0: they talked about before it came out was the stunt that Dar Robinson does at the end of the film, which is he goes out of a window of a building in downtown Atlanta and was, at the time, the highest freefall that had ever been done in a movie. And they, they did a special about it, and they did things about it, and they talked about it, and they sold the movie based on it, and the, the shot was in every single piece of advertising they did. And so I expected, by the time I finally saw this movie, that it was going to be a stunt to end all stunts. It's a good stunt. He goes backwards out of the window, and at the beginning of it, it's a pretty good shot, but it's less than half a second, and then they cut to the second half of a shot, which isn't even the stunt. It's a dummy, and it's so clearly a dummy that there's no point in having done the world's highest freefall jump because they don't show the last part of it. It's a waste. It is such a waste, and honestly... Speaks to,
1: speaks to my theory that Burt Reynolds is not a good director. And this was a case where
0: I remember being so bitten by hype that walking out of that, I almost dismissed everything else simply because I was so irritated that they had blown that up and tried to make it into something when it was nothing.
1: Drew, I think it's time to move on to one of the decades most infamously, curiously, fascinatingly bad films, and it's John Avelton's Neighbors. In a not-too-distant suburb, on a very quiet street... Earl Keese, a reserved, hardworking homeowner, sits calmly waiting for his dinner. Little does he know he's about to meet the neighbors. Lock the doors. Hey, Earl! You go to hell! You're not getting back in here! They're coming your way Friday, December 18th. (laughs) Neighbors, read it R.
0: Oh boy. Let me, let me just start by saying, I have never wanted to make a film. I've never wanted to enjoy a film more than I did when Neighbors came out. Um, I was rabid about SNL. I was rabid about John Belushi. I was rabid about Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi together. Kathy Moriarty coming off of Raging Bull. And then I read the Thomas Berger novel. And Thomas Berger is a, a fairly great novelist. He wrote Little Big Man. And I, I think Neighbors as a book is really terrific. And, What's fascinating is much of the dialogue in the film is almost directly lifted from the book, but it is a beautiful example of how tone and miscasting can not just spoil something, but can create an almost
1: unbelievable horror show. The big hook, the big like what Aykroyd and Belushi and and the publicity team really hooked into on this film Uh, for better or for worse, is that it was supposed to be Ackroyd as the uptight suburbanite and Belushi as the new wild man next door neighbor, but at the last minute, Uh, They developed it into the opposite, which is Aykroyd would be the wild newcomer,
0: Eh, which is sort of not true. They didn't. It wasn't last minute, but it's it is clearly a case of traditionally these guys would have been cast the other way. At this point, Belushi had built his reputation as he's Bluto from Animal House. He is a force of nature. You unleash on people.
1: Okay, so the problem with the film is not that they went across type. That is not. But nor is that. Does that help the film in any way? Screenwriter Larry Gelbert, who is not happy with the final film, is a great screenwriter, wrote Nash, and to see his name on something that is so bereft of laughs, I mean, there is not one laugh.
0: The entire idea that when you live in a cul-de-sac and you live out in the suburbs and you're completely isolated, that your neighbors become kind of your whole community because there's nobody else out there. So they have the house next door. Somebody shows up, moves in, and Earl and his wife, Enid, are both in this kind of uh, rut where they eat the same thing every day. They eat the same thing. They drink the same way. they It's the same. New Neighbors means maybe there's going to be a little bit of excitement. And Vic and Ramona, played by uh, Dan Aykroyd and Kathy Moriarty, come rolling into their lives. And over the course of one long night and the next day, has had his entire world blown apart by chaos. There's possibly something funny in there. I am shocked now looking at it as an adult, by how deadly bad John Belushi is in this performance. He is off his game in every way.
1: Aykroyd, as if his goal was to be, like, not just to be, like, obnoxious in a funny way. It seems like his goal was just to be somebody you'd want to get off the screen there's a bit early in the film, or halfway through the film, where Belushi's on the phone trying to call someone, and Aykroyd picks up the phone and yeah, he talks like this. What's up, motherfucker? Yeah, what's up? It's like, yo, cokeheads, this is somebody's $30 million movie. What are you doing? It's an embarrassingly bad film. I think a large part of the uh, blame is, of course, it goes to Avelton, who... God bless him. Made Rocky and The Karate Kid. Not a funny filmmaker. Well, and
0: here's here's the thing. Look, if you're making one of these movies and you're a producer and you're in rehearsals and clearly your two movie stars hate your director, stop because it's never going to work. You can't go onto a set with two forces of personality. You know the nickname that John and Dan had when they were on Saturday Night Live was the Bully Boys because they would frequently just run roughshod over people at SNL when they wanted to do something, they did it. And there was an attitude from them that pretty much they were going to make SNL what they wanted it to be. And if anybody got in their way, they were going to trample them. And I think that they wanted to be able to do that in Hollywood. By this point, Belushi's frustrations with his career and with what people saw him doing had already really gotten to a terrible place. He was off the clean and sober path that he'd been on for Continental Divide. I think this movie is so wrong-headed in how it ends up using Belushi and because he's not the right fit for Earl Keese. And he might have been if he gotten older and had some weight on him. But they age him up and it's very fake and it comes across as sketch comedy acting. They never get any deeper into these characters. They never actually become anybody. And it's a shame. I like comedy where there's some malice behind it. I like the notion of Dan Aykroyd playing somebody who's scary. But it's just off-putting here. I, and this is, this is one of those movies where I remember I didn't see it theatrically. I begged and begged and begged, and I couldn't get, get them to let me see it theatrically. So when it came out on video, I talked my parents into renting it, and uh, we went to watch it. And I remember I'm sitting in a beanbag watching the movie, and we get to the scene in the middle of the film where Earl's, Earl and Enid's daughter comes home from college, and she's been kicked out. And Vic is going through her suitcase, And he goes, hey, Earl, look, I found a pair of your daughter's edible panties. Want to take a bite of her cherry? And as he says it, my dad leapt over me and kicked the VCR to make it eject, took the tape and stormed out of the room. It was about six months before I got to see the rest of that movie. That line was his threshold. And it's so funny seeing what will push somebody. But there it was. That line was he was done and we were never going to see the end of it. And he didn't care.
1: Kudos to your dad, because like. That's like a step away from a pedophilia joke. I don't like that joke.
0: Oh, yeah. It's not a good joke. It's not it's not witty. It's not. And it's one of those things where the movie is so. And I think he would have been less offended if the movie just didn't feel skanky. There is something low rent and skanky about this film.
1: There's weird Nazi imagery in the film. The the Dan Aykroyd character, Aykroyd's wearing these creepy ass blue contacts for no reason. I don't know, man. Dan Aykroyd's got some creepy shit in his head. I, I, I honestly believe that, man. Between this and, like, nothing but trouble, don't ever leave Dan Aykroyd to his own devices. Ever.
0: Listen, we're going to wrap this month up with a, um, a film that I find fascinating and that has actually, I believe, aged fairly well.
1: The chances of it being remade today are literally impossible.
0: Thank God, because uh, nobody needs to do that. We've already got a perfectly lovely version of TAPS.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I've been informed that Bunker Hill Academy is to be closed. We have a home here, something we think is worth defending. Can you tell us where you put those weapons? The All system? right, we have three demands. They're very reasonable. Okay. We'll oh, behind no, your you bag, stay your bag, where you bag. are, Sheriff! Rated PG. Starts Friday, December 18th, at a theater near you. It's from Harold Becker of The Onion Field, The Black Marble, in his next 80s uh, sojourn would be Vision Quest. Uh, it's a straight-faced suspense thriller with action about a military academy about to be shut down and replaced by condos so some of the more overzealous cadets stage a violent rebellion. Uh, and it's George C. Scott as the headmaster that they're fighting for, Timothy Hutton as the relative voice of reason, uh, Sean Penn and Tom Cruise as young hotheads, uh, Giancarlo Esposito. It aims for a little more gravity and a little more like dramatic heft than like something like Toy Soldiers, which we'd get to many, a couple years from now. Yeah, this would
0: be considered a YA movie if it was released today. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that the screenplay is by Daryl Ponickson, who uh, is the novelist who wrote The Last Detail. Um, it's weird that this was adapted for the screen by a novelist, but not the one who wrote the book. It's just a different novelist. And One of the things that I love about this movie is you get the sense that at this point, Tom Cruise and Sean Penn and Tim Hutton, they all wanted to be the best young actor. They all wanted to be that hot shot, super cool. Hutton had already won an Oscar. Sean Penn was certainly starting to get attention. Tom Cruise was starting to get roles and starting to get attention. These guys were hungry. So this movie, when you're watching them and their scenes together, every one of them is doing everything they can to kind of own the screen every time they're on. I think Tom Cruise in this movie is off the charts great.
1: Yeah, he's very good. The whole cast is good, but yeah, you would think like, oh, young Tom Cruise, young Sean Penn, they'll be good despite their age. No, no, they're good, period.
0: Yeah, well they and you can see that they're they're all thinking about what this what this opportunity is and it's an unusual movie in that uh kids die.
1: Yeah and it's not gone for rah-rah. It's not going for that kind of action, but nor is it nor is it straight drama. You know,
0: I think it is a um, tricky balance that it strikes, but it's a movie that I loved when it came out in in 81. I showed it to Toshi when we were getting ready for it, and he loved it. Like it was it really spoke to him. There's something great about the idea that you're teaching these kids, you're brainwashing these kids who are in these military schools to a certain conditioned way of thinking. When they react the way you've taught them to react,
1: it's considered wrong. Exactly. That's the most interesting wrinkle of the film is that to them, they're not fighting back as a course of rebellion. They're fighting back as a course of what they were taught. They believe that this they're defending their institution. So, you know, it's not just, Oh, you can't shut our school down. We'll shoot you. It's we're doing what you taught us. It's a really, yeah, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy there.
0: There's a terrific sadness to it. And I love some of the people that show up. Like you said, Giancarlo Esposito is great. And it's so cool to see him young like this. Evan Handler shows up and uh, for people that know him, you probably know him from Sex and the City, where he was Charlotte's bald uh, husband, uh, who was on a lot of the show. Evan Handler is one of these great comic actors these days who you see and everything. He's really
1: good here and and very intense. That wraps up December 1981. What a great year of movies, Drew. We'll have a recap episode in two weeks, so I don't want to spill really too much. I'm really excited. But-
0: I, yeah, I'm really excited. And doing a top 10 list for 1981, I think, was was kind of challenging and uh, really made me look back at everything we've talked yeah. about this year.
1: Our next episode will will cover uh, the Oscar winners of 1981, the top 10 box office movies of 1981, and uh, our top 10 films of 1981.
0: Uh, so, And uh, when we do come back for January of 1982, you can expect Morgan Fairchild Thriller. You can f- expect another film by the great Errol Morris. We're going to get a magnificently sleazy crime thriller from a horror filmmaker that you should know more about. And uh, finally the best movie ever made about divorce. We are going to kick things off right a month from now when we return for season three of 80s All Over, starting with January of 1982. We'll see you then.